Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Jessica, could you speak to what DE&I, those initials, those words mean to you in your life? DE&I for me is an acronym really for empathy. If I break down what all of that means, what it strives for, it starts from a place of empathy. It also means acknowledgement of privilege when you have it, um, power when you have it, what you can do with those things. To me, it means listening and not talking, seeking, ultimately understanding. But it, it's also action to me. It's dissecting and changing and right-sizing. But again, to me, that all starts with empathy. Diversity, equity, and inclusion are three words that many brands and companies have been talking about a lot since the events of 2020. But DE&I has been around for more than just a year. In this mini-series, I will be talking to marketers and executives about the ways they are promoting DE&I in their organization. My guest on this episode of the CMO Podcast DE&I mini-series is Jessica Robertson, the Chief Content Officer at Together. Together is a brand new media and commerce company with the mission to feature a diverse and inclusive community of game changers, culture shapers, thought leaders, and barrier breakers. The founders of Together are four world-class athletes, all Olympic gold medalists, Alex Morgan, Chloe Kim, Sue Bird, and Simone Manuel. Jessica is my first guest who was the chief content officer. Before joining Together, she was the head of content for the Players' Tribune, which is another publisher that is owned by world-class athletes. She has also held positions at The Fader, MTV, Rolling Stone, and AOL Music. In this conversation, we'll talk about Together's objective to disrupt the inequitable pattern in sports and media. Only about 4% of sports coverage is women's sports. We'll also talk about the impact storytelling has on DE&I and what marketers and executives can learn from great storytelling. This is my compelling conversation with Jessica Robertson. Jessica, welcome to the CMO Podcast. I have to tell you, in prepping for this great chat we're going to have, my wife and I started watching your video content on your site, on Together's site, and we frankly could not stop. And we watched the Jalea story, we watched Maya Brady, we watched the Surfer Girls. It is just so good. And my wife, who's probably a bit older than your target audience, she just said to me, this is so inspiring. I can only imagine what it's doing for young girls. So I just want you to start there. What is it about this very young company that is producing work that is just so good and compelling? Well, first, I would say that's very validating. So thank you. Um, we wanted together to be a see it, be it brand. It was imperative for us to have an entire generation of young girls see themselves reflected back 
in the stories that we tell, possibly for the first time ever. So everything, every story that we produce, every series we make is done with that intention. And I love that you use the word inspiring because when we were building the brand, as you do, we had a blank wall and we're putting words on this wall of what we want this brand to be, who this brand is for. We were debating, do we even use the word athlete or not? Are we saying specifically for women or not? And we came down to traits and inspiring was one of the first words that we wrote down. It has to move people. And that's what we aim to do in part with every story that we tell. What was your origin story with this brand? And the brand is less than a year old. What brought you and these four amazing women together? It starts with Alex Morgan. She, coming off the World Cup win in 2019, did as all athletes at her level, which is to say one of the greatest athletes in the world. I don't have to say female or woman in front of that, and that's true. Uh, was assessing her career and the landscape that she exists in, what was available to her coming up, what wasn't available to her coming up. And she would call it legacy. That's a word that she uses. And I think coming off of that win, she's on the back nine of her career now. She wanted to leave something bigger than medals or trophies or whatever in the case. She wanted to create something that didn't exist for her. And she's been on sort of the forefront of the fight for equality and equity in her sport, certainly for women in sports at large. And she was sort of looking next to the women that she plays with and against every single day and what their journeys have been or haven't been. And she also knew that she wanted to become a mom. And it so happens that she welcomed a daughter into the world in the last year plus. So then she thought about what exists for her daughter or her eventual daughter. And she wanted to, to create a brand that sees these young women for who they are, celebrates them and tells their stories because it doesn't exist and it didn't exist for her. And she was very intentional about making sure that this was propelled by diverse perspectives and experiences. And she also, coming from a team sport, believes in the power of a collective. So she wanted to do this in partnership with other incredibly powerful women who, like I said, their experiences, lived experiences are very different from hers. So that's where Sue Bird, Simone Manuel, and Chloe Kim join the picture. I joke often that the four of them are our Avengers. They're just this incredible, powerful um, collective who on their own individually are so accomplished. Four of the greatest athletes of all time, but like Alex had a, a shared mission to leave the sport and to leave culture better than when they were coming through. So it's, it starts with Alex. We, we brought in, um, incredible women to compliment and to build alongside her. And then from there, the brand work really started. And that's where we debated for a long time, what is the voice of this brand? How does this brand manifest? Um, I mentioned we were conceptualizing this in 2019. The world changed pretty radically throughout the build of this brand. 
which greatly impacted the voice of this brand um, and its manifestation. Um, and I think in the short year that we've been live, almost a year now, we've seen incredible growth, incredible investment and response to the brand. Um, the community that we've built is incredibly passionate about this brand and has expectations for our brand, which is really interesting to see. We got our first tattoo, a community member of ours tattooed our logo on her arm um, because she felt like it was hers. It's a place where she belonged and didn't have that before. And it's been, it's been really incredible, really, really incredible. Did you reach out to Alex or did they reach out to you or how was the connection made? So I've known Alex and her team for quite some time through my work at the Players Tribune. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my personal work at the Players Tribune was heavily focused on women athletes. So um, I have a lot of relationships and connections there. And I got a call from her agent, a sort of exploratory, um, saying, hey, you know, we're thinking about doing, there's uninterrupted, there's the Players Tribune. Alex is thinking about doing some version of that herself. What do you think? And it was honestly a series of conversations, probably for the course of a year before we actually started to implement real planning. Okay, where does the investment come from? Where does it live? Is it incubated inside a larger shop? Is it something that we go and we fundraise and we launch independently? What do we call it? Is it the Alex Morgan company? The, all, all the true sort of business and brand work that needed to be done. Um, but it was, I would say, early 2019, those conversations, or yeah, late 2019, those conversations were happening in earnest. I'm at the end of watching the Beatles documentary by Peter Jackson. I'm like on hour seven, and I'm just loving it because it's it's about the creative process. It's about chemistry among creative people and, and geniuses, and I, I find it so mesmerizing. Could you talk a bit about what the chemistry is with these four women when they're in the room together? I can't believe I get to be in the room with them so often. They are so... There are people that you can describe and then there are people that you experience. The four of them together is a real experience. And they all have different approaches and different voices and different perspectives and different personalities and different types of expressions. And the first word that comes to mind when the four of them are together is presence. You can, you, it's just the, the temperature changes in the room. You can feel it. Um, Simone has sort of this quiet fierceness, but as soon as she smiles, the again, the temperature in the room changes. It's so warm and inviting and beautiful. And she is so strong. Sue is hilarious. She brings a little swag to the room. Um, Chloe loves to laugh and have fun. And Alex is just very intentional and almost allows the room to take shape however it needs to to accomplish the goals that we have. Um, she's, she, she's the compass though. She's often the compass for us. Um, they're incredible. They feed off each other really well. Um, they make this brand better. Their ex- life experiences, but certainly their perspective on what this brand should be, um, makes us better. And they're not afraid to have those hard conversations. What kind of things do you talk about when you get to the get together with the four of them? Is it the business going forward? Is it 
the business model? Is it how you want to evolve the brand? Is it about your community? What kinds of things? Probably all of the above. It's all of the above to varying degrees of specificity. So it's, mm-hmm. um, I like to, to use our time with them to get feedback. So they're not in the business every single day, obviously they're full-time athletes, but um, when they're watching and consuming, what are they experiencing? What's resonating with them? What's also happening in their personal landscapes and lives and sports and teams and leagues that we need to be talking about? Um, we update them, of course, on the business. We'll ask questions of them too about where they want this to go. Now, we will have a big level set in March 2nd, 2020, which is our one year anniversary, mm-hmm. where we talk about what the next year holds. Um, for me, it's it's information gathering and again, resetting our compass continually and making sure that the brand, the interesting challenge of building a brand like this one with these four incredible women is it exists on its own unto itself, but it also is a reflection of them. So there's immense responsibility to make sure that any story that we tell, however this brand manifests in the world, that it is also something that resonates with them and makes them proud too, and is an honest reflection of them. So there's a, there's a lot of sort of layers to the build of this, um, which is why when we have the four of them together, it's essential to get that feedback and also understand what their ambitions are for this brand. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. We're going to get back to together in a moment, but I want to come back to you. I was researching this podcast, looking at your content, and also looking at you know, your voice and your career. And I listened to the 33 Voices podcast, and I just found it really, really uh, wonderful on so many levels. But I felt a connection with you, Jessica. I grew up in a small town, and not many people leave my small town. I was the only family member in my large family who left. Uh, when I go home, People don't ask me about my job or what I do. They ask me about my family. Uh, I had an ambition when I was young to move to New York and to be a writer. And I didn't fly in an airplane until I was 22. So all this was in your podcast. So we, I felt a, a great connection. So I want you to reflect on that. You grew up in a small town in Kentucky. You're going, going home to see them soon. I would like you to reflect on how that has shaped you and where that ambition came from. You know, so what is it about your upbringing that gave rise to that ambition and helped shape you as a person, a storyteller, a DE&I champion, an entrepreneur? So could you please reflect on, on your, your background and how that plays into Jessica today? It's a really big question. I, I don't know where my ambition came from. What I can say is I knew very, very early on at a very young age that I, that I did not want to stay where I was. I, I knew I wanted to leave. I 
what I appreciate about my home and my family and my upbringing now, I didn't fully appreciate at the time. But I also think because of where I come from, which is a very simple place, and we didn't have a lot of means, is I function with a lot of grounding. I, I'm not greatly impressed by the coasts or um, other things that I think people aspire for, power and money. And I, I don't have ambitions for any of those things. My ambitions have always been simple, which is to tell stories and create empathy in this world. And as a person, as a trait, Maybe it is because of my Southern family. I was taught to ask questions and be polite and listen and be nice. And, you know, some of those things I think hurt women over time, which we can talk about. But mm -hmm. I, I was always an empath who observed and who would imagine other people's worlds and experiences and almost want to crawl inside them and then bring them out into the rest of the world. Um, so I don't, no one in my family works in media. No one's left. It's a very, again, a very simple place, very simple family. Um, they think I'm, you know, it's, it's one of the, I remember my family visited me in New York for the first time. Um, they said I walked too fast, but the resounding, <laughs> the resounding, um, sort of message of support was, this is so impressive. Congratulations. I could never see myself here. And the difference is I could always see myself there. So I don't know. I think I was just sort of destined to leave and then ultimately appreciate going home. Who were your role models growing up? Writers and musicians, probably outside mm -hmm. of my family. My family is, my mom's side of the family is quite large. She's one of six. And the women in my family are loud and boisterous and funny and run the show. So I, I had incredibly strong female role models in my personal life, but I, I looked to writers and musicians. I, uh, great female writers, Virginia Woolf, uh, Sylvia Plath, Anne Sexton, poet, um, a lot of female musicians. It was the way, like my formative years were right in like the mid nineties when girl power was a thing. Lilith Fair was a big, um, festival, um, and I saw myself reflected back in their own journeys. And um, there were some female athletes. The first jersey I ever bought with my own money was a Lisa Leslie jersey. Um, so I either was reading an Anne Sexton book or listening to Tori Amos or Joni Mitchell and mm. always identified with the female voice. Well, you started at Rolling Stone when you finally moved to New York. And that was several years ago. Then you moved on. To a variety of positions. You were in content and media at AOL Music, at, at Viacom MTV, at The Fader, at the Players Tribune, now together. I listened to you speak about your experience at Rolling Stone as your first job in New York, and it was <laughs> quite a transition. So you might want to uh, address that a bit. But I'd like, to, I'd like to hear from you which of those experiences that brought you two together was the most stretching for you? Which one of those moved you most outside your comfort zone? It's interesting because Rolling, Rolling Stone stretched me as a person because it was my first experience in media, out of college, moving to New York. I had incredible imposter syndrome. 
because everyone around me came from an Ivy League school or their family worked in media, they had connections. And I felt very outside of the club. So that I, I was stretching in my personal life more than I would say professionally, although I was learning what it meant to work professionally for the first time. Mm-hmm. I, my instinct is to say MTV and the Players' Tribune for very different reasons. MTV, the role that I assumed there was to build a, a taste-making music brand to reach an audience that MTV either used to reach and doesn't reach anymore, or to reach a whole new audience that, let's say, Pitchfork or other influential music entities and brands were reaching. And I knew a lot about how to build a brand, but this was the first time I had to build a team. I owned a P&L. I was in big conference rooms and I had to lead and answer every question. So from a professional standpoint, that experience probably stretched me the most and was one of the most formative. And I would say the player Tribune was probably the perfect confluence of both of those. The player Tribune to me became incredibly personal and was sort of the Venn diagram of all of my, my passions and my interests and my ambitions. The, it started as a hypothesis, which was what would happen if you take the middleman, in this case, the relationship between journalists and athlete, you, you fundamentally change the dynamic of those conversations. You put the recorder on, but you empower the athlete to take you where they want to go and, and tell you a story about their life that maybe no one's ever asked them about or they've never told before. And ultimately, they get to touch and shape that with you. So the dyna- you, you take the middlemen out and you go direct to the source and you create alongside with them. What could you do with that? That was, the, that was the big question that we were trying to answer. And it turned out that we can humanize an entire community of people and dimensionalize. Humanize is almost a reductive word. To dimensionalize these people and to see them, truly see them maybe for the first time and relate to them. And, you know, I got to do that work for almost five years at a scale that I don't think we could have imagined. And there's, there were a lot of incredible experiences and rooms and conversations that came from that time. And, you know, as a storyteller, oftentimes at the Players' Tribune, I got to be the, the, the holding space for someone else's deeply personal experience. And sometimes that included trauma. Sometimes it included celebration. And the case of, you know, Kobe Bryant, who we worked with many times over, um, being a, a home for his retirement announcement. And when he came through New York, we popped bottles of champagne and toasted to his career. I mean, there were just so many moments from that time that, I was privileged and lucky enough to be a part of. Let's go back to the Players' Tribune for a moment. You worked there for a long time. What did you learn there that has helped you get off to such a fast start at Together? (laughs) Go where the silence is. The entire premise and the work at the Players' Tribune was to unlock and dimensionalize. And there's no... (laughs) 
greater category of people in my mind, in my perspective, who move culture forward than women and specifically women athletes and probably even more specifically black women athletes. Um, there is significant white space if we want to talk about brands and business opportunities that exist here. Um, there's no brand that brings sport and culture together for a female demographic in this way. But more importantly, the stories that we're telling and the women that we're telling them with, and also the women who are actually creating the stories on our team, for example, it's a full, all women, mostly women of color, our team. Um, they haven't been centered ever, really. Most of them haven't. So for me, it was go where the silence is, listen, and make it so good and so undeniable and so real and authentic that it resonates. And I think great storytelling does two things at once. It, it taps into your IQ and your EQ at the same time. It makes you think, it changes your perspective, it creates an emotional response, any number of emotional responses, and ultimately creates empathy. Um, and that was it. That was, no one's here. Why haven't they been here? We should be here. Has there been a storytelling mentor in your years since the Rolling Stone? One of my mentors, I've been privileged enough to have a few. One of my mentors was the editorial director at the Players Tribune, um, sort of emeritus. His name's Gary Honig, and he is founder of ESPN the magazine, spent years and years inside the shop, is one of the brilliant minds of our time. And we, over the course of five years, talked a lot about experiences, questions, hard questions, um, people, therapy, um, constructs. I mean, we talked about everything and ultimately that made the stories that we told better. And one of his prompts, which I hold tight to now, even like in my, my personal relationships, when I meet new people, I tend to think about their life as if it were a movie. And one, one of his prompts was, you know, if you can imagine someone's life as a movie, think about great movies. There's a, there's a protagonist. There's a great supporting cast. There's always one supporting actor, right? Who is that person in that person's life? Uh, what's the most important scene? What is that soundtrack? Can you literally place me in the room? And he made all of us better. You're coming up on your one-year anniversary in March. You're the chief content officer. How do you feel it's gone in the first year? Has the first year been everything you had hoped it would be? How do you measure the impact you're making qualitatively, quantitatively? So please reflect. You're a very, very interesting startup with a great purpose. So how do you feel about year one? I'm floored by year one. I was asked right before we launched the brand, which the launch was delayed because of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, 
I was asked what I, what I feared for the brand. And there's any number of fears you have whenever you're launching a startup. And my fear was because for so long it's been reinforced was that no one will care. Mm-hmm. No, no one will care about these women. No one's going to consume these stories. Um, despite knowing that wasn't true, but that was my big fear. Um, year one has proven that so many people care. So many people celebrate this brand. There are quantitative and qualitative measurements against that. We are the fastest growing sports brand on TikTok. We're number one in our competitive set. We have 1.4 million followers, which is pretty astounding in nine months. We've doubled, almost tripled our revenue target in just nine months, which for me, as a purpose and mission-driven brand, to actually drive investment in the space to these women um, fills me up. It's great for the business. It's a great proof of business, but it, it also fulfills a mission for us. I mentioned our community member getting a tattoo. It's, it sounds sort of ridiculous to say, but it's like we wanted to be an identity brand and people, largely women, are seeing themselves reflected. And that resonance is, has been incredible. There's a lot of other ways that we're measuring success. We're sort of drinking from a fire hose, from brand partnerships, from platform partnerships, from development and other production companies, platforms, Netflix, others that we're talking to about long-form development. We have a lot of exciting announcements that are going to be made in 2022. Um, but the outpouring of support and investment um, in business and community has been unlike anything I've experienced in my career. How do you speak about your purpose inside your company? And how do you know you're making progress toward your purpose? I know you're still very young, nine months old, but this is an issue so many of our listeners wrestle with. You know, they, they, they want their company to be a purpose-driven company. They want to activate their purpose. They want to make sure it's sustainable and keeps going. You start it with an amazing purpose. So I'd just like to hear you speak about how you, in your own language, talk about the purpose inside and how do you know you're making progress? There's the big purpose for us, and then there's a lot of many purposes beneath that purpose. Um, we talk about it very similar to the way I'm talking about it with you now, which is about seeing and centering and lived experiences and authenticity, even the means of which these stories come to life and how they're created. Um, we talk about conversation and challenging questions and what our role is as a brand to make statements and have a perspective and there is no neutral anymore. We talk a lot about that and how that can manifest. Um, We also talk about how that purpose changes for us. Certainly as the team changes and grows and stretches, the business scales, you know, 2021 was about launching a company and a brand that resonated. You can define resonance a number of different ways. Um, it was to create and send, or create visibility and center stories that aren't traditionally centered. What we're talking about now as a team around purpose is what does that mean in year two? So visibility for us isn't enough anymore. We're interested in investment and what that actually looks like. 
visibility is one part of investment. Mm-hmm. There's so much more. So it's it's a long way of saying a lot of the language that we use and the values that we uphold and we dissect and we talk about. I talk about it the same way that I talk about it with you. Yeah. Yeah. How would you like to see brands? I know you just said that brands are reaching out to you. How would you like them to get involved? And what is your message to the CMOs who are listening? Where have you been? <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a cycle that exists in women's sports. Well, first of all, we should acknowledge women's sports is sort of ground zero for everyism. And it's been said that women's sports is so far behind. And I say this very often. My opinion is women's sports and women athletes have been so far ahead that culture has had to catch up and we're starting to get there. So I sort of, I jokingly say, where have you been? Um, But there is this cycle that exists in women's sports that's related specifically to brand partners which is of 100% of media coverage, it's well known, the stat, that only 4% of that goes towards women athletes. That's not even dissecting the quality of that coverage, the breadth of that coverage, the diversity of that coverage, the marketing and amplification of that coverage. That's not even, that's just a number. If there's only 4% visibility for these incredible women, it's incredibly hard to grow the community, the fans, the viewership, to put bodies in seats, to sell tickets to these events. If you're not growing that, the audience, it's brands are hesitant to invest in this space because mm-hmm. it's not worth their ROI. And if they're not spending money, the media companies aren't going to cover because they're not going to get any ad revenue against it. So there's a very vicious cycle and there's ways to break that cycle. And together is first way to sort of disrupt that cycle was to tell the stories, just like invest and tell these stories. For brands, for CMOs, what I would say is it takes conscious, intentional investment in this space. It's not enough to say you support women. You actually need to invest in women. You need to be the decision maker because you can disrupt this cycle. It's also an incredibly profitable growing category. I mean, I think it was at Deloitte that projected it'll be a billion dollar category in the next couple of years. If that it's, it's worth the investment. Um, someone has to make that decision and you're in the seat to make that decision. And don't, for me, I also think about who those decision makers are, like literally who's in that seat. What do they look like? What has their experience been? Um, We talk about isms, of course, Mm -hmm. coming into play in this space. So I think I would question who's in that seat and what role they play. And then the power and privilege they have to afford opportunity to others. Is there a partnership you could talk about today that you think is very uh, progressive for you and very innovative and very exciting? We've been fortunate enough to work with incredible brands who are really investing in women. We did a four-part doc series with Alex Morgan that was presented by AT&T. We are in the middle of launching a four-part series in partnership with Porsche, um, which is all about celebration 
of ambition and dreams and achievement um, that brings together four incredible women in that series. We have a lot of exciting brand partnerships and announcements to make very soon. Um, one of the ones that I'm most excited about right now is because of the story, not just the partnership itself, um, is with Buick. They are an NCAA title sponsor. They came to us recognizing that the level of investment on the women's side around NCAA tournaments is not the same. It's hard to ignore that. Um, last year, shortly after we launched, um, the inequities of the uh, women's, now we can call it March Madness, but the women's uh, NCAA basketball tournament and the conditions those women were in versus their male counterparts was made very visible. And we were vocal about it. We talked about it. We covered it quite a bit. Um, and one of the questions that came out of that is, okay, outside of the governing body, there's a responsibility now for those brand partners to show up differently. And they can also, they, I'm going to say it, I'm, I'm too Southern polite. They're part of the problem and they can fix part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So Buick recognizes that and they want to invest more in the space and they want to right-size the investment and the opportunity around these tournaments. So they've come to us to activate around every major NCAA women's tournament that exists, including the women's basketball tournament, which now we can call March Madness and Final Four. And I love the story of that partnership. And we'll do some great activations on the ground and I'm excited to get into experiential. I hate that it took making very visible inequity mm -hmm. to drive that change, but I think that's necessary. And I love that a brand partner like Buick wants to figure out how to be a part of the solution. And the CEO is a woman and the CMO is a woman, coincidentally, or maybe mm -hmm. not so coincidentally. Mm -hmm. Now, you're a gifted storyteller to the marketers who are listening, who have big budgets and are trying to be better storytellers. What's your advice to them? Authenticity is everything. Everything. And it's, it's not just something you say on a panel at a conference. It's not something you aspire to. People will know if the story is authentic or not. It's a touch. It's a feel. It's the conception of the story. It's who created, who told that story. It has to be authentic. And authenticity to me comes from a lot of places, but most importantly, and I just said it, it's who conceived the story, who's making that story, who are you trying to reach with that story? Do those people look like the people you, and have experiences of the people you're trying to reach? You can't manufacture that. To me, it's, it's a, a bigger ambition to with those budgets and with that power to create new pipelines of opportunity to consider, like I said, who's in the room to consider who's not in the room, shake things up. What's your advice to CMOs on creating an organization that is stronger in diversity, equity, and inclusion? Your company is founded on those principles. If you were to sit down with a CMO in a large company right now, what counsel would you give them? 
where is your talent coming from? What is your brand aspiring to be? Do the people inside that company reflect that brand, live that brand, are that brand? Who's considered when you're making decisions? I think a lot about leadership. Effectively, I'm at the top of this company right now, but um, I also think about the privilege that I have as a leader. I'm, I mean, there's obvious privilege. I'm white, blonde hair and blue eyes. I'm feminine presenting. I'm straight passing. I'm able-bodied. I'm college educated. I'm, there's a lot of privilege I have. With that comes power. And what I've come to believe about power is for me personally, and I would advise this to a CMO inside a large organization, is power needs to be shared and given out to empower the other people around you, to acknowledge that I actually don't have all the answers. My job is to make a decision. But my power ultimately is only effective if I'm giving it away. And the the brand should come first. Jessica, let's move to the final section of this wonderful chat called the Creative Brief. And my first question to you is, What's the first brand that you remember making an impact on you as a young girl in Kentucky? Nike. Nike and Jordan brand, I guess, more specifically. There wasn't a lot of access in Kentucky. I guess the other one would be MTV because my television was on all the time. My mom was a single parent. So my twin sister and I were in front of the TV a lot, alone a lot. Um, And the Television was on either an NBA game, and Michael Jordan was my hero, one of my heroes, or it was on MTV. And it's funny because I, to come full circle and to walk into and work for MTV later with ambitions to bring back music legacy, which is something that I grew up with knowing them mm-hmm. for, um, was a pretty special moment for me. A lighter question. What makes Sue Bird so funny? <laughs> Man, she's born with it. She, it's so, what, it's not even just how funny she is. It's how quick she is. It's mm. her wit. She's so witty. Like she does not miss a beat. And I said at the top of this conversation, there are people you can describe and then there are people you have to experience. Sue Bird is an experience. She's also just a deeply good human, deeply, deeply good human. I will say this, Sue on her own is hilarious and a riot and a great time. Sue Bird with Diana Taurasi is a whole other level. They need a show. They really do. Well, that's, that's up to you. Yeah. Jessica, thank you for this honest, authentic, and very inspiring discussion. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. That was my conversation with Jessica Robertson. Three takeaways for your business, brand, and life. First one is women's sports is wide open for brands to get involved. Women's sports is growing. Women athletes are amazing people. This is an area for those brands listening and those people with brand budgets. You need to get involved. Learn more about this. This is the right place to be for many, many brands. Second takeaway, 
Authenticity is the key to great storytelling. Jessica is one of the world's great storytellers. She's told stories of some of the most amazing people on our planet. When I asked her the key to storytelling, she said very simply, authenticity. Third takeaway, what's the key to building a company that's grounded on DEI? Empathy. Jessica's advice to CMOs who are trying to make progress on DEI in their organization is to start with empathy. To learn more about DEI, please visit the links in our show notes. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you like the show, tell a friend, and remember to rate and review us wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast DEI miniseries is a Gallery Media Group original production in partnership with Deloitte Digital.